Obadiah, verse 1, reads as follows. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the brethren. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart has deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as an eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came, thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how thou art cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the, to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day thou shalt thou, thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captives his forces, and foreigners entered in his gates, and cast lost upon Jerusalem, even thou wast one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day thy brother in the day that became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou should have not entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own hand. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possession. And their house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And of the south they shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain of the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host and the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even under Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is at Sheparad, shall possess the cities of the south, and the Savior shall come upon the Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this book of Obadiah. May we learn from it today. May your word be giving us wisdom and knowledge. Be with me as I try to speak your word and your knowledge and your wisdom right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we heard Nathan talk about recently the prophets. We have to know the prophets, he says, right? What is the prophecy, right? And believe it or not, if you remember way back in the days before the pandemic, we actually were studying the prophets, right? We had my whole Sunday school series on, we start off with Hosea, we studied the book of Joel. We studied the book of Amos, right? And 
as you know, we all got interrupted because of the whole pandemic and shifting schedules and all that. And we'd love to get back to it one day. We're still in the middle of Amos and we hopefully will someday. But we put a pause on that. But I figured after hearing Nathan's previous message that maybe we shouldn't put a pause on everything, right? So I looked in the Bible here and I saw the book of Obadiah, only one chapter, and I figured it'd be a good thing to study right here, right now in the second half right here, for us to look at, to see who is Obadiah? What kind of prophecy does he have? And who cares, right? Who cares? What's the meaning? What's the big deal? If you want to hear some of the, uh, the old prophets, my old Sunday school, as you know, if you look on your handout, it's available online through all your normal uh, podcast sites. It's on the iOS one, on Google Play podcast. You can catch up if you want to hear more about the prophets. But today, let's look at Obadiah, probably a book that you guys have never read until now, because I forced you to listen to it. So now you guys have all can say, I have read Obadiah, right? So now you guys have read it. What's it about? Who was this guy? So Obadiah, again, we said is one of the minor prophets. Doesn't mean that he's any lesser than any other prophet. Just means that his prophecy was shorter. And we see how short it is. Only one book, only 21 verses long. But still an important prophecy, a prophecy that was fulfilled, that came true, and interesting to learn about. Now, of course, if we want to know who he was, is I was, I was interested to learn or confused to learn, actually, that we actually don't know a lot about who is Obadiah, right? Because it turns out, and I did not know this, evidently Obadiah was a really popular name back then. Obadiah, the name, shows up in the Bible like in 13 different places. So when you ask Bible scholars, well, who is the Obadiah that wrote the book of Obadiah? You'll get like 13 different answers. They might say, oh, he was this Obadiah, or he was that Obadiah. So, you know, I can't tell. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not going to offer any guesses of, is it the Obadiah in 2 Kings? Is it the Obadiah in Chronicles? Is it that Obadiah or this Obadiah? I don't know. The best guess we have is that he probably lived around 600 BC or so because there's reference to Judah being conquered. And that would kind of like uh, line up with that, that time period. That's our best guess. Obadiah, his name means servant of the Lord, servant of the Lord. So we know he's God's servant. We know that he gave God's message. But here's the question. What was his message? What was his message? So for each of the minor prophets so far, I gave you the little one sentence summary, right? The one or even one word summary of each book, right? When we talked about Hosea, it was about repentance, right? When we talked about Joel, the theme was God is sovereign. When we talked about Amos, we talked about God's judgment. If I had to say what the theme of Obadiah's message is, I would say this. I would say this. And I didn't even pull up my handout for the people. Well, this is the first page, right? If you're following online. Uh, what is Obadiah's theme? The theme is punishment for Edom for its pride. Punishment for Edom for its pride. That's the theme of the, the book of Obadiah. If I had to give you the one sentence version, if you forgot everything else and everything else tuned out today, if you just remember that one sentence, you got the message basically, right? So that leads to one logical question, which is this. Who are the Edomites, right? I'm not my judgment on Edom. Who are the Edomites, all right? The Edomites are descendants of Esau. 
the same Esau that you're hearing about in Melvin's Sunday School on Genesis, right? Talking about Jacob and Esau way back when, the sons of Isaac, right? Even back then, you remember, there was a very contentious history between the two brothers, right? Jacob stealing the blessing and birthright of Esau, the older twin, right? They were twins. Esau, the slightly older twin. Jacob, the trickster, stealing um, what was supposed to be Esau's, leading to years and years of hostility between the two brothers. And it's no surprise, no surprise, that even after the brothers were long gone, the descendants continued to have animosity toward each other, right? They did not like each other, right? We don't, we don't like Israel. We don't like Edom, right? They were enemies, so to speak, right? Even though they were so family, right? As close as uh, relatives, if you trace all the way the bloodlines back, still did not get along. So they wound up staying in a kingdom south of where Judah was. That's where they established their kingdom. As you know, as you guys are studying with Melvin right now, Israel went into Egypt for a while, right? And eventually they'll come back out. Edom stayed in that area, stayed and moved south and uh, established uh, their own place there. And we'll read later on that they also got involved with the, uh, the Babylonians and their and their uh, military attacks and so on. So what happens in this book? What's the message? Let's talk about the summary first. Let's go through the verses pretty quickly. Verses 1 to 9 talk about Edom's sin. What do they do wrong? And the prediction of their ruin, right? It says in verse 3, verse 3 that Edom had what? They had pride of thine heart, pride of their heart. What were they so prideful about? It says in verse 3 that they dwellest in the cleft of the rock. They had great defenses, right? In verse 4, it says, They exalted thyself as the eagle, as though thy set thy nest in the stars. Right? They put their cities in the rock where they had great defenses, where they could be high up and no one could attack them. I showed that picture at the start of your handout, right? Um, the, the picture of the city and the rock. Nathan showed this picture before, right? When he did the slideshow on Petra, right? Uh, Edom was in that area where Petra is, where people used to carve out cities in the stone, right? Cities in the cliff. And you can imagine back then, thousands of years ago, how hard it would be to attack that city, right? There's only one entrance through the cliff, right? And if you're hiding in the middle of the caves and stuff, how can you hurt, hurt those people? And if they're high up, as it says here, high up as eagles, and you're attacking the city from the ground, they can throw stuff on you, shoot arrows down on you, throw rocks at you, whatever. It is a great defensive place for back then. Obviously, nowadays, might not make a difference because we have explosives and stuff, right? But back then, they had the best defense, right? Their city is literally in the cliff. They could hide out there forever, right, if you came to attack them. So because of that, they're very prideful, very proud of themselves and happy that they had this great, uh, this great thing for themselves and became so prideful that they were not, were not, they were not good to Israel. Because in verse 10 to 16, we see Edom's sin against Israel, right? We see that they continued to have bitterness toward their, what the Bible calls, brother right in verse 10 it says they had violence 
against thy brother. Right? In verse 11, it says they stood on the other side. Right? They were opposed to Israel. Right? We know from our study of the other prophets that Israel was conquered by outsiders. And Edom's reaction was to stand on the side and not help out their relatives, so to speak. But instead, what did it say? It said in verse 12 and verse 13, right, that they entered into the gate during the day of the calamity, right? When the bad things were happening to Israel, they decided to pile on. This is their chance. Let me take advantage. Let me rub it in. Let me get my revenge too on Israel and Judah because I don't like them, right? And what was the, the prediction in verse 10 because of that? The prediction was that thou shalt be cut off forever. Thou shalt be cut off forever. And what's the prophecy that came out of this? Verses 17 to 21. The prophecy was that, okay, Edom, you did all that stuff. Guess what God predicts? Guess what Obadiah said God predicts? It says, Israel will be restored eventually. Verse 17. Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and Jacob shall possess their possessions. Basically possess it back. Yeah, they lost their land now. They're going to get it back. They're going to get back, God says. And what's going to happen to you, Edom? Verse 18. Verse 18, what's going to happen to you? At the end of 18, it says, There shall be not any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord have spoken it. Now, you heard Nathan mention a little bit about this prophecy stuff the last time he spoke, and he mentioned this about how prophets predicted some things hundreds of years ago or even thousands of years ago, and it came true. And folks, this is another example right here. Prophecy fulfilled. Jacob lost all its land. Israel lost all its land back then. But we know today, is there a country of Israel? The answer is yes. Prophecy fulfilled, right? You thought, ha ha, your land is gone. Guess what? God gave him that land back eventually. What about part two of this prophecy? There shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. Let me ask you guys today. Is there a country on the map called Edom? Does it exist? The answer is no. You can look at any map. You'll never see any geographic area called Edom. And in fact, do you guys know of any people who identify themselves as Edomites, right? Because there's a lot of still minority cultures, right, in different countries. They might not have a country, but they still say, oh, I'm you know, whoever, right? Like in the Middle East, there's a lot of these people. I'm, I'm a Kurd. I'm a Sunni. I'm a Shiite, right? They don't have a country, but they identify as these different groups, right? Have you ever heard of any groups in the Middle East identify themselves as, I am an Edomite? No. The answer is no. You know why? Because the Bible's prophecy is correct. There are no more Edomites. God said it. It became true. I have never heard of, and I have never met, and I have never seen anyone say, yes, I am a descendant of Esau. I am an Edomite. Those people don't exist anymore. To the extent they do exist, they've become, long become Muslims or Arabs, and they don't identify with that at all anymore, right? So... God's prophecy was fulfilled. And the prophecy was fulfilled because of the sin of Edom, which was pride. So we're going to talk a little about pride today, right? Because why is pride so bad? Some people would say this. Pride is something not to be ashamed of. Because usually when you're proud of something, it means it's something good. 
right? Think about all the good things people say we should be proud of. In the world, we celebrate people like that, right? If you won the Super Bowl, you're the quarterback winning the Super Bowl, shouldn't you be proud you did something that very, very few people have done, right? If you won like some Nobel Prize in science, shouldn't you be proud? You're the top guy. Everyone recognized you that you won this award. You're the best guy, number one scientist or whatever. Shouldn't you be proud, right? Even on a lesser scale. Oh, I got a 4.0 in my school. Shouldn't that be something to be proud of? What's wrong with that? In fact, the world usually uses the word pride in a positive connotation, right? You hear about being proud to be an American, right? That's considered a good thing. Even the gays, right? What's their phrase? We have gay pride, right? That's the good thing, they would say, right? That's the world's view on pride. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Right? We know there's some sorts of pride maybe even the world doesn't like and that we know that's wrong, that's obvious, right? That we'd say, oh, if you're too like arrogant or unrightfully prideful, yeah, yeah, we know that, that's bad or whatever. But I think the hardest thing and for people to get and understand is pride when you think you are right. Right? Like these people that I gave the example. If you are, you feel like you're justified. I got the 4.0. I got the raise at work and the promotion. Why can't I be prideful of that? And even for Christians, right? You might say, God, I'm doing everything right. Maybe this guy, hypothetical guy says, hey, I just witnessed to 10 people today and 10 people got saved. Look what I did. Can't I be prideful of that? That's a good thing. And we would say and 100% agree that guy did the right thing. He is 100% right. That's a good thing. We want 10 people to get saved, right? We want people to witness. Yet, that's still pride. And guess what? Yet, that's still wrong. So how does this jive? And this is so hard for us to, to figure out how it all relates because it goes against what goes in our mind of what makes sense and what is right. But it doesn't for God. You see, for God, Pride is sin, and he knows this really well because he knows of the original sin. The original sin of Lucifer, the angel Lucifer once upon a time. What was the sin? You guys remember this from the Bible? What was the thing that started him on the path to becoming Satan, the devil, the enemy? It was pride. Look how beautiful I am, he said, right? I'm so great. Why can't I be like God? His pride led to his downfall. So while it doesn't seem like, oh, it's this horrible thing, like, oh, you know, what's, what's wrong with being happy that I got a 4.0 or promotion or I'm so good at sports or good at whatever? God knows more than us. He's smart. He knows that even though it doesn't seem bad, it can lead to really bad things. He's seen it firsthand through Satan. That's why he gave us this verse in Proverbs, right? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Pride is the prelude to bad things coming, right? Even though it doesn't seem like it's a horrible thing to be prideful and be proud of uh, good things that you do, it could be the prelude to bad stuff. Here's the problems with pride. The problems with pride. Number one, pride ruins unity. Unity, right? We as Christians know this. We are the body of Christ. We're supposed to be working together as one. Common goal, common effort. Right? You can imagine like a football team, 
right? We did the example of the football team before. They're supposed to work together as one to win the game, right? What happens when one guy is too prideful? Like I said, you're the quarterback. You won the Super Bowl. You're the MVP. Those guys who get really prideful and push themselves up. That happens. That does happen sometimes. But what's wrong with that? And what do people say about those people that take that attitude? They say, hey, Mr. Quarterback, you forgot this is a team game. Even though you might have the best throw, you need a receiver who can catch the ball, right? Even though you have the best throw, you need an offensive line to protect you so you don't get hit. You need a whole team. You need a defense to stop the other side so that you can win. If you aren't all working together, your team's a loser, right? So you can't just say, it was all me, I'm the MVP quarterback, I did everything. It doesn't work that way. And it shouldn't work that way in our lives either, right? Whether it be in your work or your family or anywhere else, right? To say that it's all about me, I'm the greatest guy, right? You guys are all beneath me and I did it all. No, you want to have a team effort working together. It doesn't work at work when you do it like that. If you guys work with other people on teams and stuff, we know that doesn't work when one guy takes that kind of attitude. It turns off the whole rest of the team, right? And it doesn't even work in the spiritual context. We're all here supposed to be Christians, right? We're supposed to be working together for God. It's not supposed to be one person is better than the other, right? It's supposed to be, hey, are we all striving together? Hey, more people need to get saved. Are we working together? It doesn't matter that, hey, that guy, he witnessed the 10 people, like we gave the example before, right? It doesn't matter. He's got to keep working. You got to keep working. Everyone's got to keep working, right? It's not like, oh, you got 10. We're going to give you a parade or something. No. That just means that we need to do even more. 10, Mr. 10, why don't you do 20? Why don't you do 30, right? We're working together. Let's do more and more and more together. We want to be unified in Christ working more and not thinking about how great I am for what I did. And related to that, pride encourages comparison, right? Oh, I did this, I'm better, you're worse, you're no good. And that leads to division, doesn't it? It leads to division. Same thing like we said about the, the sports team, right? Where if the quarterback keeps saying, I'm the best, well, everyone else hates him now, right? Now he becomes a bad leader because he just keeps saying, I'm the best, right? Same thing in the congregation. Imagine that hypothetical guy I talked about, the one that said, I witnessed to 10 people in one day. And he starts saying, I'm the best. You guys are all losers because you guys got zero people saved. How does that make everyone feel in the congregation? Do they feel like, oh, I'm going to serve God more now? No, they're going to feel terrible. This guy's jumping up and down and trying to measure himself. Like, oh. And this gets worse and worse the more and more people do it. The more pride spreads. Because now it's not just the guy that says, oh, I got 10 people saved and I'm better than you. Now everyone's trying to measure. Oh, well, he got 10. I got one. Oh, this guy got two. He's no good. This guy got five. You know, like, where does it end? We know that doesn't work in the real world, right? Imagine at your, uh, at, uh, at, at, at your school, right? If people are all always worried about, oh, ah, this guy, who can get the highest grade? This is why, you know, some, some schools, they have the whole um, grading on a curve, if you remember, right? Where everyone has to compete against each other. There can only be one A student, right? And everyone has to fight. And it leads to everyone being upset, right? and worried about it, and some people being prideful that, oh, I'm on the top end of the curve, and you're on the bottom end, and you know, I, I'm, you know, I can get the A, and you gotta get the C, and this and that. 
We know it from real life, and we know how it applies. That the more we compare, the less unity we have. The more we compare, the less unity we have. And the more we compare, the less unity we have, the more exclusivity we have, right? It furthers separation. The idea being that, oh, you start thinking, oh, I'm this great guy. Well, I only hang out with other great guys, right? It's like in school, say, I'm the 4.0 student. I'm only hanging out with the 4.0 students now, right? I want to be with the other people that are at my level, right? You know, I knew this guy back in, back in the school days, right? And we were talking once upon a time about dating and stuff, right? And we were talking about, oh, would you ever date? You know, we went to Cal Berkeley, right? So would you ever date someone that was like, just like a high school graduate that didn't go to college? And he was like, no, I would never even consider it. Dating someone that did not graduate from college, you know, I'm a UC Berkeley graduate, right? Those people would be beneath me, so to speak, right? And I thought that was very narrow-minded to say, like, how do you know? How do you know you wouldn't meet someone that's high school graduate, right, that only and didn't go to college, and maybe that's the perfect person for you. How do you know? But that's the kind of the attitude that, oh, I'm on this level. I need to be with other people on this level. And sadly, folks, that happens in the church too. Some people get the attitude of like, oh, I am a, quote, good Christian. So I only hang out with these people. These other people, I don't want to deal with them. Those guys are the losers, right? Oh, we don't care about them. Folks, that's completely antithetical to everything that Jesus taught, isn't it? Jesus was known for hanging out with the losers, wasn't he? He's the one that hung out with the lame people, the disabled guys, right? The ones that nobody liked, like the tax collectors. Our job, if we think that we are so, quote, good, unquote, is to meet with everybody else and lift everyone else up too, right? To make them, to encourage them, to make them better. We're not supposed to be separated. We're supposed to be unified unified. You know, the more we follow pride, the more we fall into sin. Look what happened to Edom, right? Edom was so prideful and thought them so great that they would laugh and mock at Israel. Oh, they're getting taken over? Ha ha. I'm going to even join in on them getting taken over. That's how prideful they were. And folks, that's the same thing that we get locked into, that we want to make ourselves feel so good. Oh, I'm the best. I'm the greatest at this. I need to put down other people to make myself feel better. That's sin, folks. That's our pride leading into sin. How bad is that? And of course, the biggest danger of pride, the biggest danger of pride is that it leads us to reject God. When our attitude becomes, I am so great. I'm the 4.0 student. I did it. I'm the quarterback that won the Super Bowl. I did it. I'm the MVP, right? I am the greatest soul winner. I got, you know, 50 people saved ever. When that word I becomes the number one thing, you've got it wrong. You've rejected God. Because the answer is supposed to be God is great. I accomplished this. Thanks be to God. Praise be to God. A lot of people, I got the 4.0. Thanks be to God that he helped me get it. I got the raise at work. Thanks be to God. Because, you know, God could take it away from me in a second, right? Oh, 50 people got saved. It wasn't just me. It was God, right? God gave me the words. God helped me. We have to have that attitude. Once we lose that attitude, the more it becomes about me, 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 the less we think about God, the less we care about God, the wrong path, that's what we get on. I'm not surprised that Edom was destroyed for their pride because they turned away from God. 
they turned away from God. They probably were too prideful, it said in the Bible here. They probably thought too much of themselves. What does God want us to be? God wants us to be humble. Humble, right? We're supposed to be Christ-like, right? And who was more humble than Christ? Born in a manger, living his life as a regular guy, a carpenter, a no-name, right? Even during his ministry, simply going around, not like a king with gold and jewels, but as a regular man of the people. We ought to be Christ-like. And what did he teach? What did he teach? He taught this, Matthew 20, 27. And whosoever shall be chief among you, let him what? Not let him get a parade and be honored and be arrogant. Let him be your servant. His challenge for us is not who can be the most prideful, who can be the most accomplished. It's who can be the best servant, who can be the most humble. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That's his challenge to us. The best person, the number one guy, the guy that God loves the most, is the guy that serves the other person the most. Not the guy that says, I did it all, I'm number one, I'm the greatest guy, I'm whoever. Look at Paul. For all the things he did, you would say he was the greatest missionary. Each one of his epistles, what does he say? Glory to God, by the grace of God. Is that our attitude? That all our accomplishments are just by the grace of God. Not by anything I did, not by my own special talents, not by my own way, but through God. Let's wrap it up with this conclusion here. The quote here says, Sin came through the pride of Lucifer. You know, if we have pride, we're following Lucifer's path. But what did salvation come from? Salvation came through the humility of Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, humble and not like Lucifer, prideful. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word, the Bible. This book of Obadiah, we rarely study it, but has a good message for us about pride. A tough message, one that maybe you don't want to hear because sometimes we do want to be (coughs) proud of our accomplishments, but Lord, keep us in check. Keep us from saying that we are so great, but remember that always that God is so great. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.